Hey everybody, this is Eric Sorensen coming to you from my office here, and um, <clears throat> I have to say right up front here, uh, I don't think I've ever needed a cup of coffee more than I need this cup of coffee right now, because I, <laughs> I am tired this morning. It's been a busy weekend, a bit of fun weekend. I actually have Daniel Price and his family staying at my place. Uh, they came up for the Mockingbird Conference that was this last weekend, where Dan spoke and our good friend Chad Bird, among Others were sharing uh, the gospel, and it was a great time. And then yesterday, uh, Daniel and myself and Bruce Hillman and our friend Raleigh Sadler, uh, along with Doug and Kelsey Clumbara, made about 15 new Theology Unscripted videos. So we were busy yesterday. Um, made a couple promos for some upcoming city events. It was a great time. But um, yes, I feel caffeine depleted this morning as a result of all of that action um so but we are not stopping moving forward uh we had we've had a great time we are entering into first peter chapter 2 verses 13 through 17 today we could really go all through all the way to verse 25 because it's one continuous passage but i i don't want to shortchange um and try and fit too much into one day so we'll just start there it reads like this be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. End of reading. Well, today's devotion, by the way, good morning, Glenna, and good morning, Whitney. Uh, today's devotion will be all about the gift of submission. Yes, I said the gift of submission. Now, I know, especially we Americans, instantly shake off that word like a dog shakes off his wet coat. Because we don't like being told to submit to anyone or anything. But the fact is, Scripture calls us to it all the time. Uh, whenever I hear the word submission, though, I have to be honest, I, I tend to think of, you know, the WWE wrestlers applying, like, the Boston Crab or the camel clutch, or some uh, move on their opponent until their opponent just finally taps out in agonizing pain, which, by the way, I have had that done to me in real life, and it does really hurt, folks. Uh, it can really do some damage. Uh, so, you know, the idea, you know, when we hear the word submission, we might get that idea of sort of tapping out, and, you know, when God uses that word, is that what he means? Well, in Greek, the word actually means uh, just to be subject to or to subordinate, or it could be even translated simply to yield control. And I really like that idea because I think that gets to what submitting means. Yielding control. And I think that's why we push back against it so much. We wrestle against the concept of submitting because we thrive on the illusion of control and when it feels like we're not in control, that we're not calling the shots, not 
our own little sovereigns of the universe, well, then we get pretty uncomfortable. We push back pretty hard. We say, like my children have said to me, I have three boys, you're not the boss of me. Or an even better one, I can do it myself. I've heard that more times than I can count, even though they very much could not do it themselves. And in reality, neither of those statements um, are really what submission means when we're talking about um, uh, it, it goes beyond just being tapped out. It goes beyond wrestling, being wrestled. It, it really, it's about actually God killing us and raising us back to life. Um, to yield control is really a death for us. Um, I, somebody once said, I forget who it was, but I thought it was, I thought it was accurate. Uh, good morning, Randy. Uh, that the opposite of faith is not doubt, but rather control. And I've always thought, wow, that's, that really does kind of get to the heart of it. And, and what, this, uh, what, what this passage in Peter tells us today is that, in fact, um, we don't do it all ourselves. It's not true. Um, we all have people and structures and institutions which indeed have authority over us. And as much as we laud the self-made man in America, and we really do, I mean, that's a big, big deal in America. In God's word, there is no such thing as the self-made human being. We are dependent on many different people, whether we recognize it or not. Therefore, submission is, is just going, it's something we have to do. It's something that's part of life. And in our text, there are two primary uh, authorities that we are called to submit to. Um, first, obviously, God, and second, government. Now, at first glance, you might say, Eric, this is a passage really just all about submission to government. And yes, that is definitely a big part of it. But if you look closely, it's first and foremost about submission to God. It's for the Lord's sake that you're called to submit to every in human institution. It is to accomplish the will of God that you are called to do good as a citizen. You give honor to the emperor, but you fear God. And so what this practically means is that God is not just sort of first in your life, which I remember hearing in various youth conferences and things as a teenager, you know, you got to put God first. Well, you can't put God first because God is first. I mean, you're not going to change his position. He is, in fact, all of your life. You submit to every inst human institution, as Peter says, not out of reverence for the institution, but out of reverence for the one who rules the institution. You seek to be a good citizen, not merely to avoid trouble or, you know, to avoid fines, but because God has called you to love your neighbor as yourself, at least that's what we're supposed to do. You don't honor your political leaders because you agree with them or because you like them or because you think they're smart or trustworthy or handsome or beautiful or morally upright. That stuff, I mean, oftentimes, frankly, we can admit is a bonus when it comes to politicians. <laughs> um, we've all been given plenty of reasons to be cynical and a little untrusting of our politicians. But you honor them because you fear the God who put them in power in the first place, as Romans 13 says, and we'll read some of that a little bit later. Now you say, Eric, I can't honor the corrupt politicians that exist today. Well, 
I think you can, but I think there's boundaries, and I think there's a way that one can indeed honor while not at the same time agreeing or particularly even liking the governing, governing authorities above you. And we have to recognize that when Peter wrote this letter, uh, he was writing to people that were suffering persecution from the reign of Nero, one of the most corrupt and disgusting politicians to ever come out of Rome. And so Peter does recognize the stakes here. He's not writing to them imagining that they're going through, uh, that they're going to be submitting to a perfect governing authority. So here's what he says. He gives basically three reasons, three reasons for why we are called to submit in our text. So we'll go over those three reasons briefly, and then we'll talk about the motivation he gives for us. Okay. All right. First of all, uh, first reason, because the Lord established government. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Ultimately, government was, government was and is established by God for the purpose of keeping order in a society. Romans 13 fleshes that out a little more. Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for, no, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur, incur judgment. Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. Now just take that in for a second. There is no authority except that which is from God. Does that mean even corrupt dictators are ultimately ruled over and placed where they are by God? Yes, it does. To believe anything else is to ultimately allow something else to have rule over creation. That said, does that mean God allowing someone to be placed in a position of authority is the same as him endorsing that person in the position of authority? Not at all. As a matter of fact, in the mystery of God's providence, there are numerous examples of God allowing something in scripture, say like polygamy among his faithful like David and Solomon, Joseph's imprisonment, the Babylonian exile, and I could go on, that ultimately he does not endorse that he doesn't say, yes, this is a great thing, but he allows it for whatever reason in his, in his mind that we can't indeed know because we don't know the end from the beginning. So then the question comes up, well, since God established the government, does that mean, therefore, we can't participate in civil disobedience against a corrupt government? No. Uh, Paul does write, those who resist will incur judgment, but when he says resist... He is speaking of willfully doing evil, willfully fighting the governing authorities, indeed not peaceful protest, as we see the disciples do in Acts 5 verse 29, when Peter and the apostles answer the authorities, we must obey God rather than men. And that verse right there is really the principle, and it's really the only one upon which we may indeed resist to some extent our governments peacefully resist. If our government is clearly calling us to disobey God, then in fact you must resist, is the call of the Christian. But the way of resistance is not with the gun or the sword. It is through being willing to, if necessary, die for that cause. That's what you see in 
the early church oftentimes Peter and John never take up arms. The early church never takes up arms against the government that's persecuting them. As a matter of fact, as they're being persecuted, they're oftentimes singing and praising God for being worthy of persecution, which is something very hard to imagine. Now, are there times where people may be called to even revolt against a government? Maybe. Yes, I think. But frankly, I'm just being honest here with you, I'm not sure exactly when that is, I'm not. I'm not sure. And I'm, I know I should probably have a more developed answer to this, but I think it's very, very tricky. And I think the default for the Christian is to find every way possible to try to uh, submit to the governing authorities. That is what it seems to be, that seems to be the overarching narrative of the Christian's relationship to those who rule over them. That's it. Uh, the next reason for why we should submit, submit to the government might help with that question. Uh, second reason Paul or Peter gives, he says, because the Lord uses government to curb evil and reward good. That's the second reason we're called to submit to the government is because God established it to basically curb evil in society. End of verse 13. Whether it be the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Now, government will never entirely vanquish evil. No matter what the politician says about, you know, getting rid of, you know, evil empires and we're going to rid the earth of that stuff, that's never going to happen by governing authorities. The only one who's going to do that is God, and he will one day. Um, and nor will it always justly reward the good. Only God will one day. I mean, the government is oftentimes doesn't do that uh, perfectly at all. But generally speaking, it can do a decent job in that direction. Does it fail many times? Yes. But that's at least supposed to be the primary goal, protection of law-abiding citizens from non-law-abiding citizens. And when government steps away from that goal, ultimately of protecting its, protecting its citizenry, then it tends to uh, get into murky waters. And the Bible's pretty clear that that's its primary function. Curb evil, reward the good curb evil, reward the good. You'll see this in Romans 13 again, verse 3, for rulers are not a tear to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he, listen to this, you want to, I mean, you talk about a troubling verse for those of you who have some difficulty with the government. For he is the servant of God. That word servant is the same word as, as we would use for minister. An avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So the command to the Christian really is, is very simple, and yet it's so complicated. What about when the government's endorsing evil? Well, you can organize and protest. What about when the government does something unjust? Well, you can work for change in myriad ways, especially in this country. But at the same time, it's very, very clear, contrary to what so many want to believe. The fact is, generally speaking, the Christian's relationship to the government is supposed to be as peaceful as humanly possible. That's the, that's the goal anyway. You'll hear Paul and Peter both command their, the, the people that are reading their letters, do everything in your power to live peaceably with those around you. As a matter of fact, instead of revolting, you know what Christians are called to do? At the end of, or in uh, the second chapter of 1 Timothy, Paul says this, First of all then, I urge that 
you, I mean, this is the way revolt happens. This is, this is what it looks like. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Who are those all people, Paul? For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now that might seem, and oftentimes it's even uh, mocked in our culture, to, to say, you know, we're going to pray for our leaders. But if we really believe that God is Lord of heaven and earth and ultimately rules every throne and dominion, then it is indeed an act of divine revolution to call on his name first before anything else before we do any action here. And the only reason that we don't see it that way is because of our lack of faith. And I'm guilty here too. I'm with you. All right, let's move on. Third reason. Uh, and he says this, because by being a good citizen, you will glorify Christ. Here's the big idea why we're supposed to relate to government the way we do. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. A little later on he writes this, verse 19 of chapter 2, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Yes, what I just read to you is entirely contrary to what you and I want to hear. The injustice of it causes me to push back hard. But before you do that, let, let the text just say what it says. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is why Peter urges the Christians to submit to the governing authorities, even though that governing authority is Nero, a terrible little tyrant. The, the Christian church, as a matter of fact, never grew in its early days through political power or intrigue, ever. You know, there's not a single command in the New Testament that encourages Christians to try and take back the culture. It's nowhere. It doesn't exist. It's not in the Old Testament either, sorry. It's just not there. Uh, it was never it was never the emphasis as a matter of fact you know tertullian famously said the the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church jesus says the kingdom of god is like a mustard seed something that is gradual the growth looks pretty unimpressive not flashy but subversive and so as people around the early christians saw their undeterred devotion to christ in the face of horrendous persecution and torture being burned alive and torn to pieces and eaten by starving lions, they did not shrink back from them. Rather, it drew people to them. People were not drawn to the Christian church in its first four centuries as it grew so rapidly because they were looking for political power. They were meeting in the catacombs. They were meeting under great threat of persecution and death. There was nothing about the, the early Christians that was attractive because they might be able to hook them up with like a good, you know, contract from the government or some nonsense. That had nothing to do with it. So the early Christians were able to, they glorified Christ through their willingness to endure suffering 
at the hands of unjust, even rulers. So, all right, that's a hard topic, and I'm not even scratching the surface with this, but I'm, I'm just trying to go verse by verse through this book and deal with what's there, whether we like it or not. But I want to get to the motivation here. Because you can, you can hear this and you can be like, okay, well, I guess that's just the way it is. And you can sort of <laughs> you know, uh, feel a little defeatist. So Peter understands this. And he goes on to, to write this in verse 21, all the way to the end of the chapter. He says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Every time, folks, every single time in Scripture, if you look for it, if you just read the text, you will find that God never calls us to do something, especially something that could be really challenging like what we've just talked about with submission. He never, ever calls us to do that without first saying, remember who Jesus is and what he does for you. Remember who he has called you. Remember who you are. Remember what he's done. Because he has submitted himself to the point of death on a cross. Because he has done it out of great love for his enemies, those who persecuted him. Because he has done all these things in order to save you. That is the motivation. The motivation is his word of promise to you that you are indeed righteous in his sight, holy, forgiven, and loved as a sheep to a shepherd. So as we go out to the world today with its messy government and its messy politics and its messy structures, don't go out there begrudgingly <laughs> submitting, tapping out. But go out there and joyfully yielding control because you know the one that you're yielding it to is the shepherd and overseer of your soul who loves you so much he bleeds for you. I hope you have a wonderful week. God bless you. We'll see you next week.